We have been <clears throat> steadily working through our series on the book of Colossians, and I understand that at times uh, we have folks who are not able to be here on any given Sunday, and so even as I review, sometimes it's like, okay, I can't quite put you know that into place, or maybe you are a guest with us this morning, and this is your first blush at all of this. But either way, I wanted to kind of go through a little bit of review for you. But before I do that, uh, a couple weeks ago, I made an important point that, you know, we, we, we shouldn't offend one another, right? That we should be patient with other things like that. And, and I, I try to be careful, even from the pulpit, not to say things that might discourage people or whatever. And I did make mention last week that I was not a big fan of musicals. And um, I was corrected in that musicals are an art form. They are an art form, and that's, that's what someone mentioned to me. And, and, and I, I have to acknowledge that. And what I would actually say is I'm not a big fan of, like, movies that are musicals. I, I really actually enjoy sitting and, and watching a musical live. But, so if, if that redeems me a little bit, that's fine. But I'm not judging you for liking musicals, and I just wanted to make sure that we understood ourselves there. So anyway, moving forward here. Last week we, we uh, uh, were continuing to, to, to study and we covered Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. The passage was divided into three interlocking segments. One was the word of Christ. The other one was teaching and admonishing one another. And then the other one was instruction through song. And so we saw that the word of Christ really is everything that was taught to us, taught to the, the apostles about Christ moving forward. And that's what we were to adhere to. And then what, we, what were we to do? What we were to teach and admonish one another. And I'll get to that point in just a moment. But then some of that instruction was through song. And that was just the way that people did it back in the day. And I tried to give a brief example of that. That's, but, but the whole point is, is that they sung things to each other. It was, it was a, a very good learning tool that we can even use today. But it actually became a part of their speech. But I wanted to expand on one of the terms that we looked at last week in relation to this idea of teaching and admonishing. So this introduction review is going to be a little bit longer this morning because, frankly, full disclosure, there's a broader meaning to the term admonish that I just missed. Um, we had a full message, and so maybe it was just the Lord letting me, you know, bring it into this week, whatever, because we had some other things to share. But I want to make sure that, that this is covered accurately. So I treated admonish as warn. And this is how the term is used in several New Testament passages. So it, it's not like it was some, you know, way off the mark thing. But what I want us to do is consider that there's a broader meaning and usage to this important term, again, that I don't want us to miss. So what I want to start, uh, start off with is to look at a brief spectrum of how this word is used. It's going to help us appreciate it a little bit more. And so I've just got a couple of slides here to give us some verses. And the first one is Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 31. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Let's pause for a minute. So Paul is basically talking to a group of leaders and he's saying, you're going to have enemies from without and you're going to have enemies from within. Now, that doesn't mean that they're constantly among us, but the possibility is there. 
that a wolf, a false teacher, can even rise up among us. And so there's that warning there. But he goes on, therefore, right, because of what I just told you, watch, you know, be alert. And remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now, clearly this passage is that warning admonition, right? That's this, this word, nutheteo, is that word admonish. And so that's the theme. That's what we're going to see running through this. So this is clearly a warning passage. Well, then we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. It says, Now all these things happened to them as examples, uh, that they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. He's talking about all the things that happened in the Old Testament. They, they were there as examples for us. Okay? And they were in, so they were written for our admonition admonition upon whom the end of ages has come. So our admonition, this has to do, I really believe, with both instruction and warning. If you look back at the Old Testament, there's some things that we are to learn from it, right? But there's certainly some things that were warned in it, okay? But it's not all warnings, all right? So this is, this is again, what we're bringing forward. Then we go to Romans chapter 15, 14. Again, you see the same word, uh, same root of the word used here. Now, I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are f- full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. So this has more of the idea of teaching. This is clearly something that's instructive. It wasn't just a matter of warning. And so this brings us back to the word admonish in verse 16. Same word right? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Now there's more to the verse, but I just cut it off there. So the way admonish is used in this verse definitely intends it to mean instruction. This is where it gets very interesting and practical for us. The term teach that you see there is more about doctrine or facts. We, we talked about that last week. In contexts like this, Admonish or instruct, this nutheteo, stands for more practical, applicational learning. We can consider teaching like a class or book learning and admonishing as more of the practical or hands-on learning. So that's why we have this compound word that's given here, or compound uh, um, concept. So we are to teach one another factually, as well as instruct one another practically. That makes sense, doesn't it? For example, we teach children different principles like telling the truth. But we also admonish or instruct them through a situation when they're struggling with telling the truth. Right? They haven't necessarily lied, but they haven't told us the truth. And so what would we do? Now, Johnny or Julie, you know... Um, I think you have the truth inside of you. Let's get it out, right? We need to, right? And, and we instruct them through that. There's a practical side. They already know, don't lie. They already know, tell the truth. Now we're admonishing them, okay? Now, in all fairness, along with that, there might be an admonishment or warning that if they don't tell the truth, there could be consequences. But that's beside the point. But anyway, so practical instruction is not necessarily adding to doctrine as much as the practical reinforcement of that doctrine or teaching, right? So they go together. And if you think about it, 
One without the other is not necessarily good. We can have facts, not know how to operate with it. Or we're going to do something practical, but we don't have our facts straight. So it's, it's really a neat marriage that Paul gives us here. Now, we're going to shift over now to what we're going to be talking about today. I wanted to clarify some things from last week and just help us to enrich that passage a little bit better. I'm not going to review this part. We already did that last week. So now we're moving forward, <laughs> which is a very brief introduction proceeding to today's verse. So this is the, the, the overall context. We already read uh, through the first part of this in, in verse 16, where, again, it ends with songs uh, and, and singing, um, songs and hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And then verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what we see here is that verse 17 summarize, it, it, it's a nice flow from verse 16. But it also summarizes, really, all of what we've been looking at in the chapter. This, this, this practical living for the Lord. This putting off of the old and putting on the new and all those different things. So my goal today is just to give us a better understanding of this familiar verse. Because let's face it, we, we do quote this one a lot, right? Do all to the glory of God, right? We, 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 we quote that a lot. Um, you know, doing everything, word or deed. You know, making sure that, that that's, that's done for the Lord. So today, we're going to start off with the name of Christ. We're going to go out of order. I don't want to throw everybody, because I know that we have some very orderly people here. It's like, hey, you start, you finish, man. Well, we're going to start and finish, but we're going to start in the middle, which is really the subject. All right? And I think it's going to be helpful. So again, let's go back to this, Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord giving thanks to God the Father through him. So that's where our emphasis is going to be. It is not hard to grasp the meaning of this phrase. But we're going to look at several passages that should give us a greater understanding and appreciation of in the name of the Lord. And, and that's my entire goal here. All right, um, There isn't some hidden meaning here, but I want us to, to emphasize it to bring something um, what I think is going to be really good from it. The name of God or of Christ or of the Spirit ultimately speaks of God's personhood and character, right? His name is who he is. Uh, I read for you Psalm 8, and the bookends of Psalm 8, verses 1 and 9, basically say this. And so you can see those three little dots there that tell us that that's, we're starting verse 8 there. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth who have set your glory above the heavens. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all of the earth. So we see that there's an importance to the name of God. What someone says or does in the name of the Lord then means that they do it under his authority and for his purposes. Right? That's, that's what we're saying. If we're talking about doing it in the name of the Lord, we're talking about doing it for him. This is why a false prophet who spoke in the name of the Lord was to, put, was to be put to death in the Old Covenant. Remember, we're talking about God working with a nation, a nation that was to be set aside from him, for him. They, God said, here's, here's my conditions. And the people said, 
we will do what you've asked. We agree. They made a formal covenant together. And one of those things was in Deuteronomy chapter 18. So turn with me back to Deuteronomy 18. Because it speaks to the seriousness of the name of God. We're going to start in verse 20. Deuteronomy 18, beginning then in verse 20. Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 20, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord has spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Obviously, there was a level of fear and respect that was related to hearing God's word, right? And what, what the Lord is telling them here is, no, no, no. Don't be afraid of somebody who is not speaking appropriately uh, in, on my behalf in my name. So anything that a false prophet said in the name of the Lord were false statements that went against his very character. Right? They were saying things that weren't true. This would bring dishonor to the name or reputation of God. That's why this was so serious. It would also confuse and discourage people from following the Lord's commands. It's the same thing today, only we are not given the responsibility of stoning a false teacher. Okay? <laughs> we are told to remove them from ourselves. And we're told not to entertain them. Not to listen to them. Now, we're going to take a different angle. Again, we're looking at different verses that are enhancing and helping us understand the, the, the seriousness of the name of God. Um, when Moses tried to avoid God's call, he asked the Lord in desperation, well, who do you say has sent me? Or who do I tell them has sent me? And Exodus 3.14 uh, tells us this. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So what does God do? God instructs him by giving him his name. You go in my name. That is how you're going to represent me. That gave him full authority to go and speak to the people and lead them out of captivity. So let's look at several more passages. Now, as, as, I, as I do this, I just want to say there are so many examples that we could read through. It, it could literally, I, I could do this for the rest of the service, for the rest of the message, okay? So we're just picking some of these out. But this next one, I, I have another purpose that I'm, I'm certainly not going to hide. I mean, that, that's going to be a part of this. But if you'll turn with me then to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, 1 Samuel 17. What I like about this passage is that it's, it's, a, it's really familiar to us. Even some of us who are uh, still in, in school, right? You've heard this story. And so um, I, I hope that you can relate to this and what we're, what we're going to be looking at here. Let me read for you then uh, verses 40 through 47. We'll be looking at some more of this passage. 
But we're jumping into uh, David's uh, issue here, his battle with Goliath. Then he, David, took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook, and put them in a shepherd's bag and in a pouch which he had, and his sling which was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. Now, just real quick, just so that we're aware here, young people, you guys, I want you to answer this. What do we know of Goliath? He was a... Giant. There we go. So you can't say giant. He was a giant. This was a huge man. Right? David, however, was not even considered a man yet. Right? When the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and good-looking. He was even cute, right? This made him mad. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the year and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God of Israel." Then all of the, his assemb this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with the sword and the spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Wow. That is a powerful statement, right? So again, this is a very familiar story of David and Goliath. We tend to marvel at how David went into battle with no armor and simply a slingshot with several small stones, right? Now this wasn't the pullback kind of of sling. This was the put in the pouch and twirl kind of sling. And then you let it go. All right. David's confidence wasn't in himself and it wasn't even in his aim. Right. Instead, David engaged Goliath in the name of God. Now, I want to pause here and, and just insert that there is a religious practice today called positive confession. People, especially religious leaders, say things like, we claim this or that in Jesus' name. Or, we banish Satan and his demons in Jesus' name. Another possible more recent trend is to speak Jesus or speak the name of Jesus over someone or something or some situation. This is just another aspect of positive confession. Folks, what does that mean? I believe that there's no real substance to that. Where in Scripture do people bring this out? Where do they get this? And the answer is they don't. Not from Scripture. 
So they may claim a house or their church or a city for God and cast out Satan in the name of Jesus, or they might speak Jesus over someone for healing. But frankly, this type of thinking is often twisted to attempt or impose our will on God, as if he is obligated to do whatever we declare in Jesus' name. Folks, that's wrong. So I want to strongly warn you to steer clear of these people, to steer clear of anyone who uses the name of God or of Christ or of the Spirit as some magic word or as a way to summon God's power as if anyone is actually able to do that. So then here's the question. Did David use positive confession as he faced Goliath? As if to say, I'm speaking the Lord over this battlefield. Right? Is that what he was doing? Keep your finger in 1 Samuel for a moment. Just as keep your attention there. But I'm going to give you a slide from Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16. And it says, And whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. The stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Just keep that in mind as we think about this. Let's read a little more of the account in 1 Samuel. Go to chapter 17, as we talked about, and then go to verse 8. Verse 8. Then he, Goliath, stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Defy here means to rail against or to taunt or to blaspheme. So basically the Philistine had been insulting the Israelites, according to the text. He did this for 40 days straight, right? So this, this, this was, this was um, Goliath's job. He's probably in a tent, you know, somebody feeding him grapes and everything. He's the big champion, right? He's, he's, the, he's the WWE champion, right? He's, he's the mixed martial arts, you know, champion of the world, right? And so he's laying there in his bed, and it's like, is it time? Yeah, it's time now. Okay. You know, goes out there. I defy all of you. I defy your armies. Come on down. That's what he did for 40 days. And the Israelites just basically shook and watched. Right? That's, that, was their, that was their response. Now let's look to another passage. I'm sorry, some more verses in here. We've already looked at them once, but I want to see them again. 1 Samuel 17, go back to verse 45 again. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. Wait a minute. Defied. He defied the armies. But according to what David sees here, defying the army is as good as defying God himself. And here's the thing. 
Really, everybody else saw it the same way. So what he was basically saying is, you and your God. Now, maybe something was said that we don't actually have in the scripture here, but it was understood that way. That's what was understood. By the way, when uh, Goliath, who thought that David was a joke, was going to kill him, he cursed him by his gods, right? In, us, in essence, what he was saying was, for the glory of my gods, I'm going to destroy you. Goliath made the mistake of insulting God while standing in Israel. <laughs> he activated Leviticus 24, 16. Right? Justice for God's name is what motivated David. That was the motivation. He wasn't just using God's name as some incantation or some, some spiritual phrase. He was doing this under the authority of God because that man blasphemed God. He questioned God's character. He questioned God's strength. He questioned God based upon questioning the people of God. And it's no coincidence that a rock sunk into Goliath's forehead just a couple of minutes after naming his own gods. Right? See, this wasn't some misguided assumption or a sprinkling of fairy dust to falsely claim God's authority. Therefore, we can safely conclude that David's actions were done appropriately in the name of the Lord. So let's move on to another example. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. And such were some of you. This is talking about all of us. We used to be sinners. We still are, but we used to be sinners apart from Christ. And there were some rough things that were listed in that, right? But our emphasis here is on the name of the Lord. So it says, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So what happened to our sin in the name of the Lord is that we were washed or spiritually cleansed from our sin. We were sanctified or positionally set apart and we were justified or legally declared innocent. All in the name of the Lord. All based upon who Christ is and what he did. In Colossians, Paul emphasized the word of Christ. We saw that earlier. Or what has been revealed about Christ. We looked at the parallel passage in Ephesians where Paul emphasized being filled with or being led by the Spirit. And so here in this passage, Paul references both the Son and the Spirit. So all of these amazing things are accomplished in the person of Christ through the working of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? Again, we're going back to the amazement of the name of God, of the name of Christ. And then one last um, uh, instance we're going to look at here is John 3, 16 and 18. 17 is a beautiful verse, but we're going to keep the theme here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So we see that really our, our faith is, is about our response to Jesus. If we have faith in the person of Christ, we have eternal life. If we believe in Christ, we are not condemned. So there's a positive and a negative in this verse. But those who do not believe in Christ are condemned. There's, there's no salvation. There's no rescuing. And then verse 18 then says that a person is condemned because they have not believed in the name of Jesus. So it's obvious that the person of Jesus and the name of Jesus mean the same thing. All right? So that's what we want to make sure that we understand as we move forward in this passage, which then brings us to that one. Everything for Christ. This is everything that we say, according to the passage, and everything that we do, words and actions. So is there anything left related to our outward living? Is there something that God left out? Or do words and actions pretty much cover it all, right? This includes everything that we do that can be observed. Paul has already dealt with the soul in relation to both putting off sin and putting on righteousness as we clothe ourselves with the character of Christ. He's already taken care of that. Now he's talking about how we're living that out. Now Paul says to live out every aspect of our life in Christ. So I want to give us, again, just a few verses to help bring us along in this. This is a nice phrase, but it's, it's used in other places that I, I think will also help us. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Again, that's, that's that principle that we have there. Very familiar verse. Um, turn with me now to 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. Now, I will tell you in context, Peter is talking, he's preparing them and saying, hey, if, if you're in Christ, you're, you're going to suffer. But there's some things that he says prior to that that, that re relate us back to this idea of everything for Christ. 1 Peter 4, 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. Love will cover a multitude of sins. And we've covered that topic even in Colossians. And it goes on. Be hospitable one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. So what's the point? Whatever activity we're doing, it's all to be done for Christ. And then Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21 say this. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you that 
that what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So be it, is what that verse is telling us. So here we have another passage that is telling us that everything that we're, to, we're doing is to be for Christ. Now, the scriptures do not narrowly define whatever you do. Right? There isn't this extremely tight, really long list that's going to determine what you do and what you do and what you do. Or what we all must do in every aspect of our lives. We are free to speak and do as God leads. That does not mean that we're talking about a free-for-all. Okay? God has given us complete and detailed instructions and examples of what it means to live for him. But we have a lot of freedom as to how we are to do that. For example, why would God give us a very rigid, strict thing to do in relation to our abilities when he has given each of us differing abilities? That's just a practical thing. But instead, what it says is whatever your abilities are to the measure that God has given to you, use them for him. Do it for Christ. Do it for his glory. So the question isn't, is it God's will for me to do this or do that specific activity? Not in the context that we're talking about. Sadly, I've actually heard people fret over the implications of God's will when it comes to what they might choose for dinner. I've heard it. See, that's where we kind of drill down so deep where we lose sight of what God is actually trying to direct us to do. Do you understand? That's paralyzing. I I don't know what to do. I don't have God's will. Yes, we do. But it's not going to be do this very specific thing in this very specific time frame. But do we know the will of God? Yes. In detail. But not infinitely so. It's not microscopic. The question actually is, whatever I choose to say or do, is it in the name or under the authority of Jesus Christ? That's the real question that we need to ask. That's what this passage is telling us. Will what I say or do bring glory to Christ or will it violate his character? And have I put on and do I wear this out in the world? Right? I didn't say that exactly right. The point is this. We put on the character of Christ. Am I going to violate that? So let me just ask you a simple question. What do we call what we say or do outside of Christ? What do we call that? Sin. You see, folks, this isn't complicated. (laughs) What we're basically saying is you do all for the glory of Christ. Don't sin. Do everything for him. Don't go against his name. Don't live something out that doesn't represent who he is. Why? Because we've already talked about we've been washed. Right? We've been justified. I can't remember the other one, but you get the idea. Listen, we have been given such amazing things in Christ. We've been given life in him. 
and we're to live it out. And there's one more thing that's added, and it's not just a, oh, and by the way, it's not a little asterisk. We're to do it with a thankful heart. Now, we've already touched on this theme in Colossians, but the subject keeps coming up. This should probably get our attention, right? Is it possible that we just simply lack a thankful heart sometimes? We, we, we lack gratitude. What are the things in which we are to give thanks? Well, let's begin by saying that Paul and Timothy were continuously thankful for the Colossian believers. So we should be thankful for our fellow believers. Here's Colossians 1.3. We, Paul and Timothy, give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Right? We are to be thankful to God because he qualified us to be an inheritor of, etern of eternity in Christ. Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, those set apart ones. Right? Colossians 4.2, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. We're to pay close, faithful attention to prayer accompanied by thanksgiving. So we haven't gotten to that part yet, but it's still this idea of giving thanks. Some form of the word thankful is used in chapter 3 in verses 15, 16, and 17. I'll explain one of them briefly. But I want you to see this. You can read that as I speak, but basically, verse 15 tells us that thankfulness is related to unity in the body of Christ. Remember, we're, we're to be thankful for one another. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing that God has brought us together in him. Verse 16, singing from a heartfelt thankfulness to God, or for God. Now this word grace which is what normally appears there, right, is used to express thankfulness. It's, it's, that, it's that grace that, that does something. And that word is used in other places in the scriptures, in the New Testament, for this idea of gratitude or thanksgiving. And so it, it, it attracts fine with that. And then the last thing um, in, in verse 17 um, so what are we to be thankful for in verse 17? We are to have a thankful heart for all that we can do or say in the name of our master, Jesus. Wow. That, that kind of elevates this idea of thanksgiving, doesn't it? When we're associating it with all the things that we can and should do in Christ. Doing his will, the ability to do it, the privilege of being able to do it, right? That is a lot of giving thanks in a very concentrated passage. <laughs> it covers our whole personal life in Christ, and it also covers our whole corporate life in Christ. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? And every one of these verses is punctuated with gratitude. With gratitude to God, gratitude for others, gratitude for the life that he's given to us to live for him. 
So it all still flows back to Christ. So let's bring this together. We've been making application in this passage, I believe, all the way along, but let's concentrate on a couple of highlights. Everything that we say or do is under the name or under the authority of Christ and for the glory of Jesus Christ. This requires submitting to Christ or placing ourselves under his authority. Folks, this is a voluntary thing. We don't have to do this. If we sin, God does not immediately snuff us out. It's a matter of wanting to, right? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So everything that we say or do in the name of the Lord Jesus is doing what he desires because now our desire is to love him. And because we love him, our desire is to obey him. We want to do what he wants us to do. Our will is secondary. His will is primary. We conform ourselves to his will. Yes, there's all these practical things that he knows best. But even beyond that, it's simply because of who he is. It's for his name's sake. And then lastly, our thankfulness in this verse is directed to God the Father. Our gratefulness is for all the Father has given us in Christ. This includes that we now have the ability and the privilege to live a life for Christ. We can now fulfill the purpose of why we were created, to live with God and have a relationship with him. To live for him and to live with him. Right? Once aliens, now we're his. Once we were the children's of the children of the devil, right? We were we were enemies. Now we've been adopted. All of that took place, all of that changed when God called us into his family and we responded to him in faith. So as we think of what we are to do, all that we're to do, anything that we say and do. Our words and our actions all come down to this. Do it for him. That is a huge standard. And how we do that, we have a lot of individual freedom to do. But we have some clear, some clear instructions as to what the parameters are. Have some freedom within that. But boy, don't, don't go beyond it. Because once we do that, it's no longer in him, it's no longer for him, it's no longer by the name of Jesus. We're, we're, we're going against him at that point. All right? So instead, we do it for him. Why do we do that? Because we did for us. The amazing salvation that we have. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I, I am just continually amazed. I, I never get over the fact that your word is so complete. You, you just don't leave things out. It doesn't mean that we have full understanding. But when we do explore your word, you don't miss anything. And so as you have concluded this, this, this line of thinking, this, this reasoning that, that, that Paul has taken us through to put off the old way of living and to put on the new, to conform ourselves to Jesus Christ, to 
have everything, everything expressed with love. All these things that we've been told, Lord, is for one purpose. It's to live a life for you and to live a life for you with full gratitude. Thanking you for the life, for the privilege that we have of being your child. Of being able to do things that instead before meant nothing. Now, now they reflect who we, whose we are. They reflect you. Our speech and our actions show the world that we are yours and they show the world who we are. Not because we're all high and mighty, but because you are. And you condescended to us and you gave your life for us. And yes, we are grateful. We are grateful for life, for eternal life, for purpose in this life. And for the life that we can have in you and with you. What a great God. What a great love with which you have lavished on us. We thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.